You're about to listen to a message by Pastor Oge Ogwe, the lead pastor of Circle Church International. He envisions all men living Christ-centered lives. Be blessed as you listen. Hallelujah. God is good. You don't sound like you know it. God is good. And all the time. All right, say hi to three people around you and have your seats. Sit down. Let us get into the Word. I have a lot to teach this morning. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Welcome to church. It's nice to have you in church. Let's get into the Word. Let's start from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. If you would pick your Bibles, turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Verse number 18. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Are you there? I didn't ask if the screen was there. I said, are you there? Is it on the screen? All right. Ephesians 6, 18 together. Everybody wants to go? With all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you because the entrance of your word gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. Thank you because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God and the same was with God in the beginning and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. That life was the light of men. That light shines in darkness and darkness cannot comprehend it. We pray that as your word is taught today that it will shine in the dark corners of our hearts and bring illumination in the name of Jesus. The word dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we pray that as your word is taught today, that we will behold Jesus as you would have us see him in the name of Jesus. And as your word is taught, Jesus is glorified and we are edified. In Jesus' name. All right. So this month we've been doing a teaching series on prayer. And um, if I would, Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 18 to 20 would be the running text of the month. And we took the first part of Ephesians chapter 6 last week where it says, praying always, praying always. We talked about perseverance in prayer. We talked about how you haven't truly learned how to pray until you learn how to stay in the place of prayer. Until you learn how to persevere in the place of prayer. Hallelujah. Yes. But today I want to take it a step further and I want to talk about praying in the spirit. Praying in the spirit, which is the next part of um, the verse. It says, praying always um, with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. And by way of introduction, let me start by saying this. Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 38. We're going to open a lot of Bible scriptures today. But I do believe that we will finish all we need to finish in time. Amen. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 38. Are you there? It says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
The salvation experience is the receiving of the Spirit. When we say we are saved, what we are saying is we have received the Holy Ghost. It's not two different experiences, it's one experience. Hallelujah. It says, repent and be baptized. And um, I've, I've taught you that baptism in the scripture sometimes, in fact most times, especially in the New Testament, is figurative. It's not necessarily baptized in water. How do we know? These people that Peter spoke to never got baptized in water. There was no water around. But they were all saved. The Bible says the Lord added to the church 5,000 that day. So they were saved. Peter says, repent and be baptized. What does it mean to be baptized? It means to immerse someone in a spiritual experience. Hallelujah, there's a whole teaching on it. Um, to immerse someone in a spiritual experience, usually by being taught. Hallelujah. And so the Bible talks about um, Jesus giving the great commission, says going to all the world, preach the gospel, and baptize nations. He wasn't asking them to dip nations in water. But instead, what he was saying was teach the nations. Hallelujah. And when you've taught them and, and they believe in what you have taught, you've brought them into a spiritual experience. So like 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I think verse 4, says that they were all baptized into Moses in the wilderness. Moses never baptized anyone in water, did he? Ah, but when, when he says they were all baptized into Moses in the wilderness, he was talking about how by believing in Moses' teachings and by following Moses' teachings, they were brought into the spiritual experience of the law that Moses brought. Are you following uh, so when he says, um, repent and be baptized, he wasn't talking about being baptized in water. But instead he was saying, repent and believe. What does the word repent mean? Repent doesn't mean to change your ways. Repent means to change your thinking. Greek word metanoia, to change your mindset. You see, repentance doesn't necessarily mean you were evil before changed the way you are behaving. No. Because if that's what it meant, then um, I think in Genesis, when, when the Lord flooded the world with water, um, the Bible ends with, it repented the Lord that he did such a thing. So now, you now say, God, evil, even God knew it was evil. If you think God did evil, then you can't truly believe he is good. If there's any, if there's any time when God ever did evil, then he can't be the good God. You get that? Uh-huh. So when, when you say repent, repent means to change the way you think. So when he was asking these people to repent, what was he asking them to repent of? He was asking them to change their mindset about Jesus. Because these people up until now thought Jesus was some charlatan, some troublemaker and disturber of the peace. A fake prophet, a false prophet. But Peter had just walked a miracle. And then, um, no, actually here they were speaking in tongues. And then the people heard them speaking with tongues. And they're like, what, what, why, why are you speaking with tongues? You all are drunk. And then Peter says, oh no, we are not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. This is just the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And this thing is only possible because Jesus has died and he has been glorified. And he shed forth his spirit. And it's because he shed forth his spirit. We can do all these things which you see and hear. And so when they heard all of those things, they were like, hmm. This same Jesus, fantastic. And they were pricked in their hearts. So what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. You've always thought of Jesus as a charlatan. We want you to see him as the Messiah. And when you see Jesus as the Messiah, and you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, he says, you will be, um, that's, that's called baptism, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? It's one experience. Hallelujah. It's one experience. I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing on this because we have many believers who believe they are saved but don't have the Holy Ghost. 
It's impossible. You were saved by receiving the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Yeah, you were made clean. You were made holy by receiving the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. If you don't have the Holy Ghost, you are not saved. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 11, verse 15 to 18. Acts 11, 15 to 18. Are you there? It says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them. This was Peter giving a defense for what happened in Acts 10. When he went to Cornelius' house and he preached um, the gospel in Cornelius' house. And the Bible says, while he yet spake, the Holy Ghost fell. And all of them that were there, they fell face flat and they were speaking with tongues. And so Peter went back to Jerusalem. And Cornelius was a Gentile. So when he went back to Jerusalem, the rest of the apostles who at the time didn't think the Gentiles were included in God's salvation plan, were angry with Peter. How dare you? How dare you? How can you go to a Gentile's house? Don't you know he's unclean? Hallelujah. They sound very much like Christians today who are afraid to relate with non-believers. We must know where the boundaries are. There are some relations you can't have with non-believers, but there are some relations you must have with unbelievers. Especially if you're going to turn them to believers. Say, how dare you? How can you eat in his house? Well, that's a very good strategy to get him to believe. Hallelujah. All right, so Peter went to um, Cornelius' house and he had finished preaching and Cornelius was saved and he came back and the rest of the apostles were like, how dare you? How could you go to an unbeliever's house? And Peter's like, you guys, please don't be upset. This is exactly what happened. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gifts that also he gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent. Everybody read the next statement together once to go. Then they glorified God, saying, so God has granted repentance, resulting in life even to the Gentiles. They could see that the Gentiles were saved because the Gentiles received the Spirit. The receiving of the Spirit is the receiving of salvation. Hallelujah. There is no Christian who is saved that doesn't have the Holy Ghost. Even if he doesn't speak with tongues. Hallelujah. Speaking in tongues is not proof of your salvation. Neither is it necessarily proof of receiving the Spirit. It's a proof but not the proof. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a proof but not the proof. It's a proof, let me, let me give an example. Just like um, in, in biology, men are supposed to have, have deep baritone voices and women high soprano-like voices. Is that correct? Supposed to. Lagos can change biology. I mean, if you've shouted in bus every day, oh, wow, my change. At some point, your high soprano voice will deepen a little bit. All right, but men are supposed to have deep baritone voices and women soprano voices. But it's not always like that. Some people have more secretion of the female hormone as men and some women have more secretion of the male hormone as women. You get that? So some women have deep voices and some men have light voices. Their voice is not any less and um, is not any... 
It doesn't indicate that they are less female than other females. Do you get that? Much like people who don't speak in tongues are not less saved than people who do. <laughs> do you get that? Uh-huh. Praise the Lord. So to be saved means to receive the Spirit. So what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Romans chapter 8, verse 8 to 9. I want to first of all um, define what the phrase in the Spirit means so that you can have an idea. You know, many people think that praying in the Spirit is just praying in tongues. Praying in tongues is a part of praying in the Spirit. Hallelujah. Is a part of praying in the Spirit. A very important part, but still one part nonetheless. Some people think that in the Spirit means you squint your eyes, you squeeze your nose like you're smelling something in the atmosphere. That's not what it means to be in the Spirit. Are you at Romans chapter 8? Are you at Romans chapter 8? All right. It says, So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Everybody read verse 9 together. I want to go. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be, come on now, you're reading coldly. If so be that what? Come on, chorus it like a mass choir. If so be that what? So you are in the spirit if the spirit is in you. Say it after me. I am, I am in the spirit. In the spirit. If, the spirit if the spirit is in me. Is in me. Hallelujah. Amen. So what does it mean to pray in the spirit? To pray in the spirit will be to pray with the consciousness of the indwelling spirit of God in you. That's what it means to pray in the spirit. To pray with the consciousness of the indwelling spirit of God in you. And most times that consciousness will result in praying in tongues. But other times you will pray in your understanding spirit led prayers. Are you following yeah, you pray in your understanding, spirit-led prayers. When you, so when you're praying some prayers as led by the spirit, you are praying in the spirit. Hallelujah. I just, I just want to clarify that today is a teaching on tongues, but I want, to, I want to get this out of the way first. If you are praying spirit-led prayers, prayers that, you know, the Holy Spirit put on your heart and you're speaking words that the Holy Spirit put on your heart, you are praying in the Spirit. In fact, one way, I think we'll do this two weeks from now, one way you learn to pray in the Spirit in a more robust way is that you must learn that many times your speaking in tongues must give rise to spirit-led words. Do you understand? So sometimes you're praying in tongues and you're praying in tongues and you're praying in tongues and the Holy Ghost begins to drop words in your heart. Sometimes he might just drop one word in your heart and you, you, you don't know why that word is there, but you just pick it up and you just run with it. You're praying in the spirit, even if you are praying in your understanding. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So that's one part of speaking, of praying in the Spirit. But then the second part of praying in the Spirit is praying in tongues. Praying in tongues. Tongues. 
And sometimes a good way to teach about a thing is by clearing misconceptions about that thing. So let me clear common misconceptions about speaking in tongues. I think I've already cleared one. Some people think they are less saved because they don't speak with tongues. Hallelujah. Uh, so you are not less saved. You are still as saved as the next person who speaks with tongues. Hallelujah. Another misconception is this. Have you ever heard the statement, tongues is not for everyone? Have you heard that before? Yes, you couldn't be, you couldn't be more wrong than you are. Hallelujah. Mark chapter 16, verse 16 to 17. Mark 16, 16 to 17. Are you there? It says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. Verse 17, everybody read together one to go. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. What's the next line? How many people? Some of them? Two of them? Half of them? It says, All that believe. So every believer can and should speak with new tongues. Hallelujah. Now, there is a common um, mistake that people make, and it's around the conversation around praying in tongues and the gift of tongues in the New Testament. So let me clear that. I'm, I'm sorry, this is a proper theology um, sermon, so bear with me. We'll not be jumping and be excited about what learning. So let me clarify. Praying in tongues is speaking to the Lord in, your, in a, as, like some people will call it, a prayer language that was given by the Spirit as the Spirit gave utterance. The gift of tongues is speaking to God's people, hallelujah, in other tongues as the Spirit has given utterance. The difference is, the first is a prayer to God, the second is a message for the people. So Paul gives a clarification in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says that the gifts of the Spirit are given to one to profit with all. What that means is, you know it's a gift of the Spirit at work when the gift of the Spirit is displayed to profit the body of Christ, not personal profit. Are you following? Yeah, so like I will often say, the gift of the Spirit is not a gift to the one who is manifesting it. It's a gift to the one who is receiving it. Amen? Amen. So the gift of healing, for instance, if I pray for someone and the person gets healed, the gift of healing is not mine. I don't have the gift of healing. The person received the gift of healing. Are you following? Are you following? If I pray for, if I, if I talk in tongues, so for instance, we don't do that much here, um, but we, we do it sometimes. Where you talk in tongues and interpret and it's a message to someone. The gift of tongues and interpretation was not given to me. I, I'm not the custodian of the gift of tongues. And rather, it's, I was a conduit for the gift to flow to its recipient. 
Are you following? We'll do a teaching series. Actually, during the Wednesday series, Training the Human Spirit, I'm going to touch on spiritual gifts one of these Wednesdays. Or on Thursdays. Why do I keep saying, well, I'm used to Wednesdays. Thursdays, so one of these midweeks. Midweek services, we'll touch it. So the gift of tongues is a gift to the one who received it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That is different from... That is different from praying in tongues. Praying in tongues, on the other hand, is for everyone. Now, another misconception people have is where Paul says that if if I'm going to pray in tongues in church and I'm not going to interpret, I should speak to myself and speak to God. Raise your hand if you've seen that scripture, you've heard it before. Raise your hand if you have. All right, put your hands down. Well, when Paul was talking about that, um, context helps us a lot. You see, because 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 have a context which is spiritual gifts and like I've said, which is the edification of the body of Christ. And so when Paul was talking about if you're going to speak with tongues in a public assembly and you won't interpret speak to yourself and speak to God he wasn't talking about prayer but rather he was talking about communicating a message because it doesn't make sense for me to just stand up just call you and say something to you in tongues and I don't interpret (laughs) are you following if that's going to happen then I better just speak to myself and speak to God this does not mean that when we gather together like this we can't pray in tongues Hallelujah. Are you following? All right. So, um, praying in tongues is for everyone. um, I've given two, let me just say one A and one B. So, number two, misconception number two. Tongues are just a manifestation of an unlearned language. Have you heard that one before? Speaking in tongues could be that you've, you've never learned French before. But the Holy Spirit will just grip you and you start to speak French. You've never heard it before? Or Spanish? Does the Holy Ghost do things like that? He does. Oh, he does. And it has happened to me just once in my lifetime. I was praying. This, I was in secondary school at this time. And we, we had this meeting we used to call prayer band meeting. And so I had gone for prayer band meeting and I was sitting with one of my friends. And I was praying in English. So I was praying in tongues, rather. And he, he, my eyes were closed, so I couldn't see him. So I finished praying. And then I was done praying. And then he tapped me and was like, thank you. But for what? And he said, for the message. And I'm like, what message? And he says, oh, I, I, while I was praying, I called his name and gave him a whole message in English. Now, I knew I was praying in tongues because I know the difference between tongues and English. I speak both of them fluently. So I knew I was praying in tongues, right? But he heard me praying English. That's not interpretation of tongues. Amen. Amen. That's not tongues and interpretation. That was a miracle. Praise the Lord. Speaking in tongues is not speaking in a known language. In fact... Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, 14. Paul says this, he says, For if I pray in an unknown tongue, he said, My spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. 
Have you met people who speak multiple languages? Polyglots, people who speak five or more languages. Paul says, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, if I was a polyglot and I spoke French, at least I would be able to detect that, okay, this tongue that I'm speaking now is French, right? Or I'm a polyglot and I speak Mandarin. I should be able to detect that, ah, this is Mandarin, I'm speaking. Or I'm a polyglot and I speak Yoruba. I should be able to detect that it's Yoruba, I'm speaking, right? Aha. But Paul says, my understanding is unfruitful. That's the first one. The second one is, if speaking in tongues was speaking in a known language that you never learned, then the interpretation of tongues will not be a gift of the Spirit. Is that right? Because somewhere in the world, someone can interpret your tongues without the help of the Spirit. Praise the Lord. Oh, but pastor, what happened in Acts chapter 2? So let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. Acts chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. Praise the Lord. Are you there? He says, now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that they heard, every man heard them speak in his own language. Take note of what is said. It didn't say they spoke in every man's language. It says every man heard them speak in his own language. Is that correct? All right, verse 7. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue um, wherein we were born? If you can go to verse 13, let's read 13 to 15. Others, mocking, said, these men are full of new wine. Now, there's something you must note here. If a person, I mean, raise your hand if you've traveled out of the country before. Raise your hand. Above, hey, do it with pride. You should be proud of yourself. You've, you've fulfilled the Nigerian dream. <laughs> raise your hand if you've traveled out of the country before. All right, put your hand down. Raise your hand if you travel to a predominantly white country. So, I mean, uh, if, if you went to the UK, put your hands down. You didn't go to a predominantly white country. You went to Nigeria's annex. <laughs> All right, but if you travel to a predominantly white country, you would notice something. You hardly find a black person. Is that right? So now, you walk into the airport, and you see this fully white guy. And he comes to you, and he asks you for your name, and you say, my name is Olamide. And he says, oh, Olamide, Baoni. You wouldn't think this guy is drunk, would you? Like, white guy, speaking Yoruba, he's drunk. Would that be your reaction? Which means that the reaction of some of these people that mocked and said they were full of new wine, they said this because the people sounded like they were talking nonsense. So some people heard their own language, while others heard absolute gibberish, which is what tongues is, right? Aha. Uh-huh. You don't find somebody speaking your language who shouldn't know your language, and you now say, ha-ha, uh-uh. kai. Whoever gave this guy this thing is not doing well. No, you don't do that. Hallelujah. So what you have, what you observe in Acts chapter 2, is not that 
um, they were speaking, some people speaking in language, another speaking in language, another speaking in language. No, what you observe is that these people were speaking in tongues, which, like I've said, sounds like gibberish, but some people heard their own language. The second thing is this. Um, let me see. If, if I asked everybody here to recite Psalm 23 in their own language, first of all, not many of you can do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? But if I asked everyone to recite Psalm 23 in their language or recite the national anthem in their language, ooh, that's, that's even harder, recite the national anthem in your language, and somebody was standing outside, do you think the person will be able to pick one single person's voice out of the many? I want you to think about it. You know what? Everybody, as loud as you can, shout your name. Now, you could only hear your own name, but you couldn't pick any other person's because when people are talking like that, they're making noise. Now you have... 120 people, which is more than we are in this room anyways. You had 120 people in a room upstairs shouting. And some people picked out their language. It wasn't because those people were shouting their language. It was because the Holy Ghost made these ones hear their language. Are you following? Yes. Are you following? Aha. Uh-huh. So it's not... It's not um, Speaking in tongues is not speaking in a known language. Do you get it? Because mm-hmm. Paul says, when we pray in tongues, our understanding is unfruitful. I remember one chaplain of ours while I was in school. One day he was speaking in tongues. And at some point he said, merci beaucoup. And... He really truly defended himself by saying, speaking in tongues and speaking, that don't you know that part of speaking in tongues can be French? I'm like, no, brother, no. Dear brother in Christ, no. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right, third misconception or third thing people say. And why am I taking time to teach this? I'm taking time to teach this for two reasons. The first is there are people who don't speak with tongues. Hallelujah! And if, if you are in this room, you don't speak with tongues and you would like to, this would help. But the second is, there are some of you who speak with tongues that have conversations with people who don't believe in it. And they bring up these excuses as arguments against what you are doing. I'm trying to equip you to defend your faith. Amen? Amen. The third one is, Jesus never spoke with tongues. And so, if Jesus never spoke with tongues, then we ought not to speak with tongues. That argument is dead on arrival because it is true Jesus never spoke with tongues. We don't have proof. Let's say we don't have proof that he did. Whether he did or he didn't, we don't know. We don't have proof. So let's assume he didn't. Right? But the apostles did. And Jesus, at his departure, said that if you don't believe in me for the 
words that I speak. He said, believe in me for the work's sake. And he says, the one who believes in me, he says, the works that I do shall he do and greater works. Which means that Jesus left in his passing a caveat for realities that he didn't, as it were, embody that the Christians could embody. Does that make sense? And so, um, the argument that if Jesus didn't do it, we don't need to do it, is, is, is voided. Because there are several things that Jesus didn't necessarily do that we ought to do. Up until the Last Supper, Jesus never said, this is my body broken for you. Do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. And in fact, by, by nature of what was broken, which is his body, he couldn't have partaken in the breaking of the body. Do you understand? It was his own body that was broken, so he couldn't have been a part of it. If it's your body that is there breaking, you can't eat. You get it, ba? So there are many things, and of which I've done a teaching on communion before. Um, listen to it. There are many things that Jesus did or did not do that give us the opportunity to go a step further within the confines of the apostolic work from where he went. So the apostles took some of the things Jesus said a step further. Jesus never on his own taught, or let me say, not never, but did not teach righteousness by faith um, as much as Paul the apostle or Peter or John or James did. Is that correct? He couldn't because he was supposed to be the one that would open the door to that righteousness by faith. And so by virtue of being the door opener, he wouldn't have partaken or taught. So he said, there are many things I want to teach you that I can't teach you right now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. So all Jesus did was lay a foundation upon which the Holy Ghost could build knowledge. And so, even the things that he, he taught the disciples in drops, if you remember, if you remember um, chemistry practical precautions that you took, I added the kidney in drops and in excess. They are, you, you add some things in drops, take it to excess. Those of you that didn't do chemistry, I'm sorry, I don't have an illustration for you. So, even the things that Jesus um, taught in drops, in, in little forms, he left it in drops so that the Holy Spirit will come and with the apostles or through the apostles it in excess. Are you getting? So Jesus created shadows or Jesus came to show symbols. Many of the things Jesus taught in parables, the apostles explained clearly. When you read, um, I think it's Matthew chapter 12 or Matthew 22, where Jesus was, Matthew 12, where Jesus was talking about the feast and how the, the father um, threw a feast for his son, called his people, his people said no, then he went out and called people on the streets to come in and feast. The truth is Jesus in his own ministry never explained that parable. But Paul in Romans 9, 10, 11 explain how salvation was first for the Jews. 
But the Jews ref refused the law and the prophets. And so because they refused the law and the prophets, the Bible says that the Lord engrafted the Gentiles. Are you getting this now? What Paul was doing was building on Jesus' teaching. Even though Jesus never fully explained his parable. Uh -huh. So there are many things that Jesus um, taught in little forms but did not ex explain fully. So was it Jesus that said, and these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they will cast out devils, they will speak with new tongues. Was it him that said it? Uh, so if he has said it, the onus is not on him to build on it. The onus is on the apostles to build. Are you following this? That's the reason why um, Pastor David read, read Acts chapter 2 verse 19. We are the household of God. Verse 20 says, built on the foundation, on the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is the reference point from which the apostles drew their, their doctrine. Jesus will lay the foundation and then every other person will build on that foundation. Are you getting this? This is why Paul called himself a wise master builder. Praise the Lord. And so if Jesus had said, these signs shall follow them that believe, in my name they will cast out devils, they will speak with new tongues. He didn't need to speak with tongues. As long as he had laid down a precedence for it. The apostles would then go, like he instructed them in Luke 24, 49, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from high. They would then go and tarry and receive the Spirit and speak with tongues. And when the Jews come and say, why are you speaking with tongues? They say, first of all, Jesus promised that this would happen. Secondly, Joel prophesied about it. So the, the entire conversation on Jesus never spoke with tongues, so we shouldn't speak with tongues. He's dead on arrival. Because if Jesus himself said, everyone that begins to speak with tongues, then he opened the room for it. Are you following? But then, a second way to look at it is, what tongues were given for? What tongues were given for? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. Are you there? Are you there? That's like half a person, because you don't really shout. Are you there now? Yes, sir. All right, let's go. It says, wherefore, tongues are for a sign. Read the next line together, everybody wants to go. All right, but to them that believe not, but prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them that. Paul gives you a mystery. Not really a mystery, he explained himself, but allow me, I'm preaching a mystery. And he says, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them who believe not. You see, just like in Acts 2, that the apostles spoke with tongues. And when they spoke with tongues, people heard them. People who didn't believe heard them. I said, what are you doing? And then they said, oh, we are just fulfilling the prophecy of Joel 2. Jesus is glorified. That's why we can speak with tongues. And they said, oh, we believe you now. The tongues are supposed to... Um, they are supposed to prove and validate the resurrection of Jesus. 
Are you getting this? So to the one who doesn't believe, tongues are a sign that Jesus was raised from the dead. Are you getting it? Uh-huh. So Jesus himself did not need to speak with tongues since he was the one that was going to be. Are you, do you follow? Since he was the one that was going to be raised from the dead, he didn't need to speak with tongues. Tongues are a sign to them who believe not. The ones who believe, the ones who already know Jesus has been raised from the dead, they don't need to know Jesus has been raised from the dead again. So what they need is prophecy that tells them not only has Jesus been raised from the dead, he sees you. Are you following this? This is why in a believer's meeting, one of the gifts that is exalted more than every other gift is the gift of prophecy. Are you following? How each one of us can have a word for the other. And that's why Paul says that I want you to follow after spiritual gifts, but I'd rather that you prophesy. Are you getting this? He's, and he explained himself, 1 Corinthians 14. If I speak with tongues in the assembly, people don't understand what I'm saying. But when I interpret the tongues I'm speaking, I'm prophesying to people. So Papa Hagen would say that Paul gives us a formula, tongues and interpretation equals to prophecy. But then there's also prophecy. Hallelujah. The prophecy is a sign to those who believe. But for those who do not believe, the tongues are a sign to them. It will confound them. They won't know what you are saying. But boy, you look different. <laughs> Hallelujah. And this is why in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit was first given, the unbelievers heard the goodness of God in their own tongues, in their own language rather. Because the tongues that the apostles were speaking was supposed to be a sign to them. Are you getting this? So Jesus didn't need to speak with tongues because tongues were supposed to prove or validate his resurrection. Praise the Lord. Misconception number four. Romans chapter 8 verse 26. Romans chapter number 8 verse number 26. Are you there? Are you there? All right, Romans 8, 26, everybody read together, want to go. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we ought to pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercessions for us. Raise your hand if you think the scripture talks about speaking in tongues. Raise your, don't, don't lie. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you know it's not about speaking in tongues. Let me see. Raise your hand if you don't know where you are. You're just in the middle. That God will, will get there. A pastor, I, I can sense that you're going somewhere. So let me not be forward. I'll just wait for you. Then I'll raise my hand. All right. First and foremost, read the last phrase of that scripture together. Everybody from, from maketh intercession. Everybody want to go. Maketh intercession for us with. Do you know what it means when you say something cannot be uttered? It means it cannot be spoken. The name of the thing that we're preaching about is speaking in tongues. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> so the groanings that cannot be uttered cannot be speaking in tongues. That, I mean, that's contradictory now, isn't it? Say, come on, groan with groanings that cannot be uttered. <laughs> So groanings that cannot be uttered in verse 26 does not refer to speaking with tongues. What does it refer to? We're going to do a very, very quick commentary of Romans chapter 8. Let's get to verse 26. I've often said that many times when you read scripture, you must seek to you must read in context because sometimes context will open up the meaning of a verse like nothing else could. Are you following? All right, so so for those of you that came for midweek service, we did a Bible study of Romans 1 to Romans 9, right? Uh huh. So for those of you who, who were not there, go back and watch the Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So first of all, before you go forward, from the two verses you have read, who can guess what the theme of Romans chapter 8 is? I mean, there are some common things you should be able to guess. Number one is sin. Number two is righteousness, lack of condemnation, freedom by the Spirit. Is that correct? All right. It says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3. It says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. I explained this on Thursday. All right. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4. It says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in who? Come on, like you know it. In who? Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then... They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Hold on, hold on. I know you are racing with me, but calm down. Go back. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Let me just stop here and punctuate. When he says they that are in the flesh cannot please God, he doesn't mean that if you do things in the flesh, you won't please God. No, he has already clarified. We are not in the flesh. If so be that the spirit of God dwells in us. So those of us that have the spirit inside of us, we are not in the flesh. Amen? So this is not you. Hallelujah. Is God happy with your sin? No. But God is pleased with you at all times. Do you know the difference? The difference is this. God doesn't love or unlove you based on your good doing or your bad doing. What kind of a parent would he be? They that are in the flesh are those who are opposed to God. He calls it carnal mindedness. Hallelujah. Uh-huh. But you are in the spirit, verse 6, um, verse 7. Go back to verse 7, please. It says, but the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is subject to the law of God, neither can it be, verse 8. He says, so then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God, verse 9. 
But you are not in the flesh. Do, do you see that now? Do you see it? So he's not saying they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So be careful. He's saying no. They that are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. He says, now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So who are those? Hold on, children of God. Who are those who have not the spirit of Christ? Those who have not the spirit of Christ are those who are in the good. So you have the spirit of Christ, which means you are not in the... Now he said, those who have not the spirit of Christ, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. But Christ owns you already because you have the spirit of Christ. All right, next verse. He says, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, hallelujah, but the spirit is life, not alive, but life because of righteousness. Um, I explained this extensively on Thursday. Please go and listen to that message. Verse 11, he says, everybody read together, one, two, go, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwelleth in you. And I explained on Thursday when I was teaching this at the music service that there are two connotations to this scripture. The first is this. If you read from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11, um, Romans 8, 1 rather, to Romans 8, 11, he has been mentioning in the flesh Um, If you are in Christ, the body is dead because of sin, but your spirit is life because of Christ. So now, what is that dead he has been talking about? He explained it in Romans chapter 7. This is why context is important. And I've taught you, when you're looking for context in scripture, you don't just look for context within the chapter. You try to get context within the book. So sometimes, in fact, in your personal Bible study, don't just read Romans chapter 8. That thing that you do when you want to study your Bible, you draw your sword. Then you say, Father, wherever you want me to read, let it open. Then you open your Bible. That's irresponsible. Hallelujah. If you want to read the Bible, if you want to study your Bible, actually pick a book of the Bible and start from chapter 1. Amen. Especially the epistles. Start from chapter 1. Understand chapter 1. Read it into chapter 2. Read it into chapter 3. Because many times the interpretation of, of chapter next is contingent on the interpretation of chapter previous. Are you following? So like here, the interpretation of his dead in Romans eight eleven is contingent on your understanding of Romans chapter 7. Because in Romans chapter 7, he talks about the flesh being sold to the law of sin. That the good I want to do, I do not do. The evil I do not want to do, I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me? He says, so I've come to a conclusion. With my flesh, I will serve the law of sin. But with my spirit, the law of life. So he's talking about... When he's talking about dead here, he's not talking about physical death. Rather, he's talking about, well, he's not talking about physical death alone. I'm going to get to that. He's talking about, first and foremost, a spiritual death due to the slavery of this body, of this flesh to sin. 
Are you getting it? So he said, if the spirit of him that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, the first thing you should expect is that he that raised Christ from the dead shall also quicken this, your mortal body that is dead. Remember the, the previous um, verse, verse 10? And if Christ be in you, the body is what? The body is what? Because of what? So when he was saying he will quicken your mortal bodies, he wasn't talking about a, a body that is physically dead as in you've given up the ghost, you're not breathing again. No. But he was talking about first and foremost, a body that was dead because of sin. The spirit of God will quicken it. He will, he would, he would give you um, life that combats against the sin, the pool of sin in your flesh. Are you getting it? All right. Then verse 11, he now says... Um, it will quicken if Christ, if the spirit of He that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He that raised Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit of Him that, ra- that dwelleth in you. The second part of that is that when you now die physically, you can trust that He that raised Christ from the dead in you will bring you back to life. Hallelujah. What does it mean that he will bring you back to life? It means that he will quicken your body in such a way that you will, like Christ died, came back to life, never to die again. You too, you will die, come back to life by the Spirit, never to die again. Are you getting the difference now? Uh huh. Verse 12. It says, Therefore, brethren, do you understand why he puts this verse of scripture here now? Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. In chapter 7, he had previously talked about how the flesh has so much control because of sin. The good I don't want, um, I want to do, I find myself not doing it. But the evil I don't want to do, I find myself doing it. The flesh had so much control because of sin. But he gets into chapter 8 and he begins to talk about the work of the spirit. And it says, if the spirit of he that um, raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then that good you want to do, that you don't do, because of sin in your flesh. Don't worry, let me explain something to you. The spirit of God will quicken your mortal body. So you will find that you will now have the ability to say no to the flesh. So he now goes on to say, therefore, because of the spirit, brethren, we are debtors. Now, in, in chapter 7, we were debtors to the flesh. We couldn't say no to the flesh, Right? But because of the spirit that raised Christ from the dead that dwells in you, that has quickened your mortal body, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. Verse 13. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit do what? Mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. Hallelujah. So you are following so far. Now, the context of Romans chapter 8 that you have read up until here is the victory of the spirit over sin. Is that correct? Please note that he won't just switch like that. (laughs) Verse 14. Very popular. Everybody read together. One, two, go. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons. Is this talking about direction? Is this talking about direction? That God will now, because you are a son of God, God will direct you to who you will marry. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Is it true that God can point you to who you will marry? Yes. Is it true that God directs and gives guidance? Yes. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate unto me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work whereunto I have called them. So it is true that God can give you direction. But is that what this scripture is talking about? 
what is this scripture talking about? When he says, be led by the Spirit, the previous verses have explained it. That if you through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the flesh, that's what it means to be led by the Spirit. In this context, praise the Lord. One thing can mean different things in different contexts. Is that correct? Is that correct? Uh-huh. So, led by the Spirit can mean I woke up and the Spirit led me to talk to someone. That's led by the Spirit, and you are right. But in this context, we are talking about a moral leading. Are you following? Uh-huh. So, he says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of Verse 15. Everybody read together one to go. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Hallelujah. So this, this verse of scripture makes sense now because we are the sons of God because we are led by the spirit of God and it's trying to explain that you are a son of God because previously you were under bondage and that bondage that you were under the bondage to the flesh don't forget led you to fear fear of what punishment because you don't want to do evil but you do evil and you know God is just so he will punish the evil so you received a bondage to fear before in the flesh. But now you have received a spirit of adoption. Hallelujah. So now you can trust that the one who is just and punishes evil is on your side and has a bias for you because he is your father. Are you following this? All right, next verse. All right, it says, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are. Let me ask you an intelligence question. How? Is it the spirit is now whispering to your spirit that don't worry, you are a child of God. Is that what it means? Is that what it means? The previous verses. How does the spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God when your flesh is tugging you to sin? And you can say no. The spirit is bearing witness with your spirit. Do you understand? Do you ever do something that you know your old self you would have? I mean, somebody says something to you and you know when you were in the world that if it was that time, I, you would not look at the person and say, thank God for salvation. The spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Are you following? Uh -huh, next verse. It says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Next verse. Let me see. All right. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, again, what are the sufferings of this present time? The, the struggle with the flesh. Are you following? The sufferings of this present time, Romans 8, 18, is not that the economy is hard. Honestly, it is. God knows it is. But that's not what Paul was talking about here. Praise the Lord. We must, as believers, hold dearly the sanctity of Scripture. What was said is what we must say. Do you understand? Uh -huh. What was said is what we must say. And I'm saying this because sometimes some verses of Scripture are so juicy. To take it out of context, to be hungry, you like, ah, ah. I, can, I can use the Scripture to mean this or that thing now. Allow me. 
But what was said is what we must say. It's called honor for the word. It's not just your pastor you honor. In fact, you don't honor your pastor if you don't honor the word. You don't honor God if you don't honor the word. Because how do you know how to honor God? From his word. Honoring God is not just by saying, God, I honor you. No, your life must be, a, must be indicative that you actually honor God. All right, so he says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, and what, what are the sufferings, the struggles with the flesh that he has been talking about, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, hold on. Another point of Bible study. When he talks about the glory that will be revealed in us, which glory is that? You now go back to Romans 8, 11. Hmm? Where he said, if the spirit of he that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he that raised Christ from the dead will also with Christ quicken your mortal bodies. And I explained to you two contexts or two meanings or two things are connoted by that one verse. The first is that you have... Um, the spirit of God within you gives you the power to struggle um, and win over sin. Is that correct? Now, if you look at it, that first definition of that scripture answers, um, well, go back to verse 18, please, please. Answers the first part of this scripture and the sufferings of this present time, the struggles that the spirit helps us to win. Right, but then the second part of that scripture, the second interpretation of that scripture, where he's where I said, um, and it also means that if, if the spirit of him that raised Christ from dead dwells in you, he will quicken your mortal bodies. That is when you die, when you finally die, he will glorify your body. You know, I've taught you before the word glorify in the New Testament, especially, is usually used to refer to either a suffering that one should undergo in the, in the honor of God or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And so when he says, um, so when he says he will quicken your mortal bodies, he will glorify your mortal bodies, he's actually talking about bringing you back from the dead in a new body. Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he talks about how we'll be given a new body, a flesh that is not stained by sin or sold under the slavery of sin. Paul says, I reckon that the struggles with the flesh now are not worthy to be compared with that time when we will no longer have to struggle. So, instead, every time you feel the urge to give in and get tired, remember that no matter how much you struggle now, the glory that will be revealed in a glorified body, it, 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 it dwarfs whatever you are going through right now. By the time you, you wake up on that resurrection morning and you see that your body has been glorified, all of those sinful appetites are gone. You will look back and say it was worth it. Do you understand? That's the meaning of this. This scripture doesn't mean that don't worry, the country is hard now, but there's a glory that is coming. Because the truth is this. Some people never come out of the hardship. Amen. And sometimes it's not because of God. We did success system. Success is such a delicate matter. It's such a delicate matter. Somebody can be prayerful. God has prophesied favor over the person's life. And the person does not learn now how to put 
prophecies to work over their lives. So you don't pray with prophecies. You don't, you don't walk with prophecies. You don't put yourself to work. I mean, it doesn't matter um, how much Peter had prayed for fish. If he wasn't in that boat the day Jesus came and told him to cast, he wouldn't have. Are you following this? It doesn't matter the amount of favor in the person's life. So many times in a bid to give people hope, we mislead them with scriptures like this. Say, don't worry. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's not talking about Buhari. Instead, it's talking about a, a more permanent glory that will be revealed that is not dependent on you, but on what Christ has done. Are you following this? Verse 19, popular verse. For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons in context. Manifestation of the sons of God will, re- will refer to what? Will refer to what? The glorified body, right? The resurrection, right? Aha. Uh-huh. So when he says, the earnest expectation of the creature awaited for the manifestation of the sons of God, he's talking about, how, you know what, verse 20, verse 20 explains it. He says, for the creature was made subject to vanity. This word vanity is not your vain. No, that's not what it means. The word vanity there refers to death. Futility, yes, that's the word, futility. The, the creature was subject to futility. The world was subject to suffering. He says, not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. So he was saying, when Adam fell, the world fell. Do you remember? Because God didn't just punish Adam. When God told Adam that you will toil the ground, and it's by sweating that you will get, he wasn't just cursing Adam. He was placing a curse on the ground too. Because the ground was supposed to be naturally fruitful. But when God said you will sweat to, to, to reap from the ground, God was telling the ground, I, I designed you to be fruitful, but no. Because of this man, you will stop being fruitful. He says, the creature awaits the manifestation of the sons of God. When the, the children of God will fully be revealed, there will be no sin in this world, and hence no more curse. In this world, verse 22, 21 rather. It says, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Are you seeing it? Into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What is this glorious liberty? Is it the liberty you have now? No. But the liberty we will have when we are all raised from the dead. When there is no more sin. Are you getting this? All right, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation, what's the, look at this word, what's that word? Groaneth. What's that word? Groaneth. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Now, everybody keep quiet. Can you hear groanings in the atmosphere? No, right? You don't hear the trees groaning. You don't hear the floor groaning. So what is he referring to as groaning? Every act that indicates or that reminds the creation of the curse of sin in the world is, an, is a groaning. It, it's, when there's an earthquake, it's a groaning. When there's flooding, it's a groaning. When the rivers overstep their banks, it's a groaning. He says, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And verse 23, he says, and not only they but ourselves also. So, 
Anytime as the new creation that we are, but we're still in this flesh, every time we have to struggle with the flesh, there's a groaning. Are you getting this? There is, there is this deep groaning within your spirit that we should, I don't like this. That's the reason why you feel guilty many times. Anytime you eventually give in to the flesh, you just feel terrible. Even though you know you've been forgiven, you still feel terrible inside. There's a groaning. In fact, it's one of the signs we used to check for someone who is saved. If you have a believer who no longer feels guilty about sin, question their salvation. Question it. Because if you are saved, there ought to be a groaning within you. I, sh- I shouldn't do this. Are you getting this? And many of you, many times that groaning comes, but you, with your flesh, you suppress it. Stop it. Hallelujah. He says, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. Now take notes. Previous verses, he says, you have not received the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. So we've already received the spirit of adoption. But, he says, we are waiting for the which means that the spirit of adoption that we received is a placeholder till the adoption actually occurs. When will the adoption occur? When we die and this body, this body of flesh is destroyed. Are you getting it? Uh, he says, waiting for the adoption to wait the redemption of our body. So that is, this word to wait means that is the redemption of our body. So the adoption is the redemption of our body. Are you following? Alright, next verse. He says, for we are saved by hope. Now, Paul is such an excellent writer. You have, to, you have to wonder how well this guy writes. Because, you see, we're saved by grace through faith. Is that correct? But faith is the substance of things hoped for. And so, at, that is a characteristic of faith is that it substantiates hope. At its most fundamental state, faith is hope. Do you follow? At its most fundamental state, that is before you start to add other things to it, faith is hope. Faith builds from hope. If there is no hope, there can't be faith because faith must substantiate hope. So when he says, for we are saved by hope, he's saying we are saved in the hope of a salvation. Are you getting this? He says, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why does he have hope? If I tell you I'll dash you a car, you have hope. Until I dash you the car, you no longer need to have hope. So, next verse. Verse 25. For, but if we hope that we, if, if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? So, what is this thing that we are hoping for? Verse 23. The adoption. Are you following? Verse 26. Likewise... And likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we, know, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. When he says we know not what we should pray for as we ought, first of all, he's not talking about general prayer. He couldn't be. I mean, the entire chapter cannot be talking about the adoption of our body, the victory of sin over um, the spirit over sin, and then he will now get here, and I'll be like, you know, this will be a very good point to talk about prayer generally. 
he has to still be speaking in context. Is that correct? So when he talks about we know not what we should pray for as we ought, it is this. That even if we hope for a glorified body, because we have never seen it, we don't know what it is. And we don't know what that reality looks like. So we don't even know what to pray for. We can only say, God, we wait for a day when there is no sin. But we don't know what that day would look like. So the Spirit helps that infirmity. He calls it an infirmity. This word does not mean sickness. It means weakness. What is the weakness? Our lack of knowledge of the life to come. We hope for it. We've read about it, but we've never seen it. So, which, so it means we don't really know it. Are you getting it? Aha. How does he help it? He says the Spirit itself makes intercession. So because we don't know what a body without sin looks like, the Spirit introduces us to groanings which cannot be uttered. So, remember those groanings I told you that every time you feel this pull within you that I should not be doing this, but I find myself doing this, and that you feel that I shouldn't be doing this. He calls it an intercession of the spirit. It is, it is your spirit man inside of you crying to God that can I be rid of this body? Do you understand? But your spirit man cannot make that cry alone because the spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you are the son of God. So your spirit can only make that cry to God because the spirit of God introduced it. Are you following this? So when he talks about groanings which cannot be uttered, he's not talking about tongues. Rather, he's talking about the, the, the pain of living in sinful flesh. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me? So I wake up, I tell myself, I'm going to pray today. I'm, I mean, we, we came here last week, I was preaching, you were gingered, said, will you pray 30 minutes? Yes, if I tell you now, raise your hand. If you kept to the schedule, every day this week you pray 30 minutes, many of you will not raise your hands. And the day you missed the prayer, somewhere inside of you, you felt terrible. I shouldn't miss my prayer time. That feeling you were experiencing is a groaning and it's the Holy Ghost that puts it there. <laughs> That's what Paul is trying to teach you. Praise the Lord. So it's not tongues, eh? All of that Bible study is just that we get here. It's not tongues. Does the Spirit enable us to speak with tongues? Yes. But that's not what it's talking about here. Praise the Lord. Let's read one more portion of scripture. Then we pray for 10 minutes and then we wrap service up. Praise the Lord. If you would turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. Are you learning something this morning? Please, if the entire explanation on Romans chapter 8 flew over your head like. Please listen to the sermon, all right? Go back and re-listen to it. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. Are you there? Yes, 
All right, everybody read Acts 2, 1 to 4 together, 1 to go. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as of fire, and it sat on each of them. And they were all, and they were all, and they began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When you read through the New Testament, there is a difference between being filled with the Holy Spirit and receiving the Spirit. There is a difference. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, um, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. He was already talking to people who had the Spirit. Is that correct? Uh-huh. So there's a difference between receiving the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. When the Bible talks about being filled with the Spirit, it's usually followed with, and they spoke. You know a person is filled with the Spirit by the things they say. Are you following this? If, if I could just do a very quick work. In Acts chapter, I think it was 7, um, do me a favor, go through Acts 7 and look for where the Bible says, and Philip's, Philip's um, filled with the Spirit, looked up into the heavens. and So I, I want you to put that up on the screen. You have that happening. Stephen, not Philip. Did I say Philip? Philip is Acts 8. Acts 7 is Stephen. Please. Stephen, Acts chapter 7. People, when the Bible talks about being filled with the Spirit, it talks about utterance. As the Holy Ghost gives utterance. But this is the beautiful thing about utterance. When Paul gave his instruction in Acts chapter 5, be not drunk with wine, wearing his excess, but be filled with the Spirit, he made you understand that you can be filled at will. Are you following what I'm saying? You can be filled at will. First of all, if you don't speak with tongues in the room, and um, maybe this is the last misconception, you think that um, the Holy Ghost has to take your tongue and wag it before you start, start speaking in tongues. The Holy Ghost doesn't do that. Only demons do. Hallelujah. What the Holy Ghost does is he gives utterance. What does it mean for the Holy Ghost to give utterance? It means he inspires you. So for instance, you are in a, you are in a church setting or you're praying with brothers, and you're praying in your understanding, and every other person is praying with tongues, and suddenly you just feel what seems like a staring to pray in tongues. That's the utterance. That's all you need. The rest of it is up to you. But pastor, I don't know what I should say. I don't know what you should say either. It's tongues. There's no curriculum. <laughs> That's okay. So tongues, introduction to tongues. First starts with ba, then a, syllables. You have consonant sounds and... No, that's not how tongues works. Hallelujah. So when the Holy Ghost gives utterance, what do you do? You just speak. The first thing that comes out, allow the gibberish flow. How do I know that it's the right thing? The same way you know you are saved by faith. Hallelujah. Are you following? The same way you know by faith. Praise the Lord. Now, for those of you who already speak with tongues, Pastor, I don't know. I know I speak with tongues and I ought to more often. But I just find myself, I'm just tired. Sometimes I start and it's not there. Paul says, be filled. 
Which means that, like my pastor would say, you can take from within and put upon you. So, you can be in your room and you know it's time to pray. And you don't want to pray. You don't feel like it. And instead of sitting there and telling myself, I wish I could just, I could just be gingered to pray. No. I taught you last week. If you only pray when you feel like praying, you don't have prayer life. Hallelujah. If you only pray when you feel like praying, you don't have a prayer life. You start slowly. Something small. Just pray in tongues. Casually. Under your breath. And as you pray, you, some of you know what I'm saying. As you pray, you just feel the power and the spirit of God just well up within you. Well up within you. Before you know it, you don't know when you are jumping up and down. You are pacing from room to I mean, it's on you now. Hallelujah. It's one of the biggest advantages of praying in tongues. One of the most beautiful things about praying in tongues is we can do it anytime, anywhere. So let me give you another challenge. Instead of complaining, pray in tongues. Hallelujah. Don't just pray in tongues when it's your prayer time. Pray in tongues at odd times too. You're playing FIFA with your guy. Just start praying in tongues. You might even win because of it. I'm just joking. If you don't know how to play, you don't know how to play. Hallelujah. You and your family, you might just be watching TV and the Holy Ghost will stare you. You pray in tongues. Sometimes the Holy Ghost won't stare you. You just hear my voice in your head. Pray in tongues now. Start praying in tongues. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah, you don't have to shout. You don't always have to shout. Let me say it like that. Because men, you, there are sometimes you must shout. You don't always have to shout. But the Holy Ghost can stare you. You can just be in your room and receive a staring to pray, just pray in tongues. Can we put that to practice this, this afternoon? All right, stand to your feet. Pray in the language of the Holy Ghost. We have 10 minutes to do this. Pray in the language of the Holy Ghost. Come on. I think you can do better than you're doing. Pray in the language of the Holy Ghost. Don't be drunk with wine wearing his excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. For those of you who don't yet pray, I just want you to take someone's hands. Take someone's hands. All you need to know, you know. Nobody needs to lay hands on you. You are already saved. You already have the Holy Ghost. You just need to give expression to something that is already inside of you. Jesus 
some of you, as you pray, the Holy Ghost will begin to put words in your heart, on your spirit. He'll just begin to put words, things you ought to speak. Go ahead and speak them. Go ahead and make those declarations. It's utterance. It's utterance. The Holy Ghost is giving you utterance. Go ahead and pray. You have a few more minutes, make it count. Pray, pray, pray in the language of the Holy Ghost. I take from within me and I put it upon me. I take from the deposits of the spirit within me. And I put it upon me.
You have two more minutes, make it count. Some of you, as you pray, you are dropping burdens, burdens, burdens. This is it. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Paul said, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess says but be filled with the spirit speaking to one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your hearts to the lord did you know speaking in tongues was one of god's remedies for mental problems being full of the spirit is try it try it you may be having what you may call a bad week Take some time out and pray in tongues. Sing melodies in your hearts. And just watch the Holy Ghost lift that burden from your shoulders. Watch the Holy Ghost lift that burden from your shoulders. I want to leave the room open for 30 seconds. There are people who just need to spend some more time Let the burdens just go. Let the burdens go. Just make melodies in your hearts to the Lord. It doesn't have to have a particular tune. Just go. Oh, Jesus. you for the Holy Ghost. Thank you for the Holy Ghost. Thank you because we can pray in tongues. Such a gift. Such a gift. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening. 
for more, head over to circlechurchglobal.org or visit any of the church campus addresses on the website. God bless you.